If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn this morning with me uh, to the book of Psalms. Psalm 121. Psalm 121, you can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin uh, or grab a Bible on the back. Psalm 121. Today obviously marks uh, the brief setting aside for us uh, of the book of 1 Peter. And you say, well, why are you doing that today, Nate? Well, give me, let me give you three reasons. One is because uh, the season of Advent begins next week, which means beginning next Sunday, next Lord's Day, we will, uh, through God's Word, begin turning our hearts to the coming of the Lord Jesus and meditating upon that wonderful reality. It's not reason number one. Reason number two is because if you were here last week, you remember that we, we came to a good stopping place in the book of First Peter. Normally it's our practice to just march through books of the Bible. And uh, we came to uh, the final foundational gospel brick, so to speak. That's what I called it anyway, as Peter uh, laid this gospel foundation in chapter one in the beginning of chapter two before he begins to launch into the specifics, the nitty gritty of what an exilic life looks like. And we're, uh, we'll get back to that, but it'll wait till the new year. And that's a great time for us to jump in to uh, the rest of the book of 1 Peter. I also wanted to take a break from 1 Peter because, because of what this week is for us culturally. Because this is the week of Thanksgiving, because today is a day where we as a spiritual family gather to give testimony to one another and to the Lord for all the things we are grateful for. And so I thought before we begin to do that in a few minutes over a meal, before we scatter to family and friends in many different directions, uh, to, I wanted to meditate on a very familiar psalm uh, to most of you. And I realized that, in fact, I, I went to my notes uh, almost positive uh, that I had some notes to build off of. I Surely I've preached this psalm before in 16 years of ministry, and lo and behold, I, I had nothing and, uh, and so uh, that was a good thing uh, for me, a surprising thing for me, um, but uh, allowed me to really dig in and meditate on Psalm 121, a psalm that I've confessed numerous times, but we've never looked at together. We've never deep dived into. And so uh, I'm going to read it. And if you would, uh, out of honor for God's holy word, if you would stand for the reading of God's word briefly. Listen as I read Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
If you looked in your bulletin, you might see, you might have seen that the title of today's sermon is Escaping Flatland. Escaping Flatland. It's the title of today's message, and it's also the title of a chapter in a book that we as elders uh, have been reading over the past few months. And in this book, the writers reference a 19th century century fable written by English theologian, and I believe he was a mathematician. His name was Edwin Abbott, and he wrote a short story called Flatland, a romance of many dimensions was the subtitle. Maybe some of you have read it or were required to read it back in your English studies. Let me explain by quoting the summary of the story from the book that the elders and I are reading. Flatland is an imaginary country that is only two-dimensional, like a piece of paper. And the residents of Flatland are shapes, lines, triangles, circles, and squares that live in Pentagon houses. The Flatlanders can think and see and live only in two dimensions— north, south, east, and west across the flat plain, having no notion of either up or down. So if a three-dimensional object is placed in flatland, the flatlanders can only see the part of the object that intersects with the two-dimensional plane that they live on. Following me? Great. (laughs) The mathematicians, the engineers, they love this. One day, a sphere from Spaceland enters the country of Flatland. But from their two-dimensional perspective, the Flatlanders can see it only as a circle. The sphere talks with one of the Flatlanders, Mr. Square, eventually helping him to see the fullness of his entire being as a three-dimensional sphere. And over time, the sphere reveals more of Spaceland to Mr. Square, showing him the many wonders of a three-dimensional world, cubes and cylinders and so on. Unfortunately, when Mr. Square tries to tell his fellow Flatlanders about the reality of Spaceland, they ridicule him and they throw him into prison. That's the story of Flatland in a nutshell. But what's the point of bringing it up in regards to Psalm 121? Well, the point is that we are living in flatlands and that we as flatlanders struggle to see the world as it truly is. We struggle to recognize that we live in an enchanted world. especially in a world plagued by fear, we soothe ourselves. We soothe ourselves either through distraction to numb away our pain or by trying to fix the problems ourselves. And so when we come to a psalm like Psalm 121, when we come to a confession like that, I believe that we can too easily keep Psalm 121 at arm's length We can recognize it as beautiful poetry. We can recognize it as this wonderful big picture promise. 
but we fail to recognize it as one that meets us in traffic. I'd like to walk through Psalm 121 today, and I want to flip that, if that is indeed your struggle, as I think naturally it is all our struggles, or at least the tendency of our hearts. I want to walk through this psalm, and I want to seek to pave the way for the Holy Spirit to plant this deep, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, in our experience. Thanksgiving's an interesting holiday because in our culture, all these people gather together and they give thanks. But to whom? And to what? And what for? You can see in your Bibles there that Psalm 121 is divided into four stanzas and each stanza contains two Verses, And I'd like to sum up the psalm in four truths, four realities for us to meditate on. But unfortunately, they don't follow the four stanzas. <laughs> and so uh, hopefully you'll be able to follow me uh, despite that fact. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first uh, two verses. But four truths, and the first one is simply this. Uh, you need help. <laughs> you need help. And, and no, I'm not... Uh, repeating what your spouse said to you on the way to church this morning, honey, you need help. Uh, I've heard that before, not this morning, thankfully, but um, you need help. Verse one, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Okay, so we don't need to spend a lot of time here. I recognize that. This is the shortest of all of the four truths. Suffice it to say that we live in a world that is plagued by fear. We live in a world that is full of outside forces that press in against us and that many times are outside of our control. In other words, we all have hills that we look up to, that we glance at. See, this psalm It's part of a collection of psalms. Many of you know this. It's a collection of songs called the Psalms of Ascent. And these were psalms written for God's people as they journeyed to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem for one of the three major annual festivals that took place there. So these were traveling songs, traveling psalms. And in any journey, especially one in the ancient world, a journey of any kind of length would present its own challenges and obstacles, even enemies upon the way. And so journeys in that time and place, of course, they weren't in these protective uh, steel boxes with automatic locks, locks that could go hundreds of miles. No, these were days-long journeys on horseback, by foot, in the hot sun, in the cold of night, through valleys of potential ambush, right? You remember the story of, of the Good Samaritan and what happened to that traveler on the way. And so then the psalmist is lifting his eyes to the hills. What I envision the psalm is doing is looking with caution above him, scanning the terrain for an enemy, even for an animal that is hiding in the bushes that has the upper hand 
on he and his family. Now, there are other ways to take the lifting of the eyes to the hills, but I think this is the most natural one, recognizing that this psalmist, that this journey is a journey in need of help. So you sit here this morning and you're not on a journey, but I bet you need help. I don't know what kind of help you need this morning. I know what some of you need. I know what I need. But the first thing we need to recognize is we need it. We need help. And I want you to clearly hear the answer to the question that the psalmist asks on behalf of himself and on behalf of all of us from where does my help come? If I'm looking up in the hills with caution at the danger that might come upon me, where does my help come from? And the second reality is this, your help comes from Jesus. Your help comes from Jesus. And you're saying, Nate, Jesus is not mentioned in this psalm. And you're right, Jesus' name is not explicitly mentioned here. But what I want you to see, and what I want you to feel as you read Psalm 121 and make it your own, is that the God that is spoken of here in Psalm 121 is not some generic deity. The psalmist declares, my help is from the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh. This is the God who made covenant with Israel, the God who chose Abram and made him into a great nation and said he would turn him to be a blessing to all the nations. And so listen to the confession of Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 7, when they realize this covenantal relationship that they have with Yahweh. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is to us. There's nothing like it, Israel says. Therefore, when the psalmist says, my help is from Yahweh, this is a statement of faith, and beyond that, it's a declaration of covenantal care. And that God of covenant is now the God of those who are the seed of Abraham through Christ Jesus. That same covenantal care now comes to us through the blood of the new covenant, shed for us through the person and work of Jesus. Listen to Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is this Jesus who made heaven and earth. It is this Jesus that sustains the world by the word of his power. It is this Jesus. Jesus, this is the God that I must know. This is where my help 
comes from. And so when the psalmist says, my help is from Yahweh, this is not some shot in the dark to some deity. It's in the context of relationship. In the same way, the help that we seek and the help that we need must come through Jesus. As we read earlier, he is the door through which we must enter. It's his presence in which we must abide. Friends, you know that this is the gospel. This is the good news. That you have help. You have help in Jesus. But here's where I want to press in just a little more deeply. Because I fear that we're content to just let help from Jesus be merely salvation from our sins. Or maybe, maybe salvation from our sins and the big ticket items in life, like moves or hospitalizations. But when it comes to the other things, really the majority of things in our lives, well, we've got it, Jesus. We'll take it from here until we don't have it. I'd like to read you a quote from Eugene Peterson, pastor, theologian, author, has a great little book on the Psalms of Ascent. And he says this, he sums up this concern. The great danger of Christian discipleship is that we should have two religions, A glorious biblical Sunday gospel that sets us free from the world that in the cross and resurrection makes eternity alive in us. A magnificent gospel of Genesis and Romans and Revelation. Yes. And then, he says, an everyday religion that we make do with during the week. For the mundane trivialities, the times when our foot slips on a loose stone, or the heat of the sun gets too much for us, or the influence of the moon gets us down, we use the everyday religion of the Reader's Digest reprint, advice from a friend, the huckstered wisdom of a talk show celebrity. We know that God created the universe and has accomplished our eternal salvation, but we can't believe, we can't believe that he condescends to watch the soap opera of our daily trials and tribulations, and so we purchase remedies for that. To ask him to deal with what troubles each of us each day is like asking a famous surgeon to put iodine on a scratch. I don't know if any of that resounds with your heart, but it did with mine. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see that the help of the triune God affirmed for us in Psalm 121 isn't merely eternal, 
it isn't merely reserved for the big picture things, the big ticket items in our lives. It's for everyday life. It's for each and every journey that we take. And it's the rest of the psalm that seeks to drive this home. And so let's walk through these verses briefly. Verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. Here's truth number three. Jesus' help is personal. Jesus' help is personal. He will not let your foot be moved. You see, the things that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 121 are things that are part of his daily journey. These are the stuff of his life. And not only is Yahweh the help of corporate Israel, as it declares there, but Jesus' help is for you and for me personally. And sure, we can take a a foot not, not slipping. We can take a foot not being moved as a big picture statement about staying steady in all of the shifting sands and circumstances of life. Sure, we can do that, but it doesn't necessarily need to stay there. Can we pray for our feet to keep steady, like literally? Can we do that? Does God even care? About that? Same with verse 6. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We can take those as big picture statements about day or night. Doesn't matter. But the sun on an ancient journey was a real threat. Especially in a place like ancient Palestine. And in contrast, the moon represented the dangers of the night. Added to that was the fact of this ancient mindset where there was this fear of being moonstruck because crazy things happen at night. After all, the Latin word luna, that's where we get our word lunatic and lunacy. Our family was watching Live PD the other night, one of Hitchcock's favorite shows, Live PD. And Whitney commented about how all of these things that they're dealing with Almost all of them are happening in the night. And I said, yeah, isn't that interesting? That most of the craziness is when the moon is high. The psalmist is saying every segment of one's journey, Jesus' help is there, whether it be fear of a fall or fear of a, a, a sunstrike. This is, this is not just big, big picture. This is not just big picture. This is I-5. This is hiking on the Lake 22 Trail. This is barreling down the inner urban trail on your bike. Are you inviting Jesus to be your help? Jesus' help is personal. And then finally, the fourth thing, Jesus' help is constant and comprehensive. One of the beautiful things, one of the great statements of this psalm, verse four, he never sleeps. He never sleeps. Our kids wonder the same thing about their mothers. 
Mothers hardly ever sleep, it seems. They hear the first sign of distress in the night and they're up as dads are snoring away. Remember Elijah and his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18? He taunts them in verse 27. He says, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. The point is, brothers and sisters, Jesus never loses track of you. He's never surprised by what you are being faced with. There's a word that appears six times in this psalm. It's the word keeper. He keeps. He doesn't lose. Yes, as we read earlier in John 10, this is regards to your salvation. Nothing can snatch, snatch us out of the Father's hand. But also in regards to your life, verse 7, in regards to your going out and your coming, verse 8. Jesus' help is personal, Jesus' help is constant, and it's comprehensive. One last thing. Well, what about this keeping from all evil in verse 7? One of the things that came to my mind was, was this the experience of Joseph? Was this the experience of, of Job? It reminds us of Jesus' words to his disciples in Luke 21, verse 16. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death, Jesus says to his followers. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And we we ask ourselves, is Jesus talking out of both sides of his mouth when he says that statement? I would say no. He's saying here and in Psalm 121 that evil doesn't need to be feared. That true evil can't touch those who are his. Yes, we will experience hardship, but there is peace. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And he is our help. And it is constant. It is personal. It is comprehensive. And so, brothers and sisters, what does this all boil down to? Well, while the whole of the psalm is a parable for one's life, even unto eternal life, I really want us to focus, as we think about Psalm 121, at not letting the details and the mundane of our lives and the help that is needed there be overlooked in this grand poem, in this grand picture of the fact that our help comes from the Lord, our help comes from Jesus. And so I have two encouragements as we finish meditating on this psalm. And the first encouragement is this. Perceive the spiritual realities in life. Perceive the spiritual realities in life. Going back to the very beginning, there is more 
There's more to life than flatland. Despite what science, despite what enlightenment, despite what our culture might preach to us, And so don't let your mind and your heart be content to stay bound to flatland. And don't limit your help to the resources of flatland alone. It was interesting to me, one of the things that came to mind when I was thinking about this and perceiving the spiritual realities was a couple months ago when the Navy released these three videos of what they called unidentified aerial phenomena. You remember this? Grainy cockpit images of some giant tic-tac is what they were calling it. Some oblong object. And here was the quote from a senator. uh, this, This oblong object was involved in complex flight patterns and advanced maneuvering that demanded extreme advances in quantum mechanics, nuclear science, electromagnetics, and thermodynamics. Of course, the alien watchers went crazy. It's a UFO. And the scientists went crazy because they said things can't move like that. And I think as Christians, I think it's just a reminder for us that there are mysteries in life, that there is more to life than flatland. I'm not presuming to know what that thing was or what those things were. I'm not going to speculate what they were. But I love it when our world gets so frustrated when their rational minds and their scientific theories can't explain things. We live in an enchanted world, a world of mystery. We live in a world with spiritual forces seeking whom they may devour. We live in a world where Jesus works according to natural law and according to scientific law as well as however he pleases. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in his little book entitled Miracles, and he says this, God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into juice which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus every year from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. That men fail to see. Like the moderns, they attribute real or ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomena, which are all that our senses can discover in it. But when Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. The miracle has only half its effect if it only convinces us that Christ is God. It will have its full effect if whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party at Cana. What a great quote. What a great image to have in your mind as you sip on that wine Thanksgiving afternoon. 
This Thanksgiving, it ought not be a stretch to find something monumental that Jesus did in your life. He kept your heart beating this morning. That's enough. He will guard your journey up or down I-5 this Thursday. And so, because he is your personal present help, not only perceive the spiritual realities, acknowledging the mystery in it all, but to pray in the little things. Pray in the little things. I asked you a minute ago if you were inviting Jesus' help into your journeys. Certainly the enemy wants to stick his nose into the mundaneness of your lives. So you better believe that Jesus wants to be there too. You give thanks to the Lord for dinner. You pray with the kids before bed, but do you cry out for help on road trips? Do you take that 10-minute break at work to pray for your attitude towards that coworker? Do you pray when you don't know where to go on vacation? Do you pray when the car breaks down and you've got no money for its repairs? Does Jesus care about the going and the comings of your life? He does. Those in the world, they experience these same things. These are common human experiences. The difference is, at least the, need, at least the difference needs to be, that they have no God that they can go to. They have no God in their going and their coming. This week, as you gather to give thanks, give thanks, friends, that you have a God that you can go to. And know that truly escaping flatland, as our title prods us to, truly escaping flatland means living a life connected to Jesus, the one who is your help, personal, constant, comprehensive. He is your keeper. Let's give thanks. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the meditation of this psalmist, for the rhythmic, poetic, beautiful language to express not just the big picture of life, but the nitty-gritty, the everyday. And Father, as those in need of help, as those in need of a shepherd, we give you thanks that Jesus is our help, that Jesus is our shepherd, that he knows his sheep better than we know ourselves. As we gather this week to give thanks, as we live this week in your presence, may we do so lifting our eyes to the hills, but not leaving them there, but fixing them on Jesus every second of every day 
as we walk with him and he with us. This I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.